Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm KG Kimaladu. Today we take you to the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations in Rockland, Maine, where Dr. Richard Kessler, former congressman and committee staff director of the House and the Senate, discusses the effect of congressional polarization on foreign policy. This program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. It will be archived on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to hear this program again at your convenience and to access many other past Speaking in Maine programs. The program will also be available as a podcast. Introducing Kessler today is George Look, Midcoast Forum President. So I'd like to welcome you to this meeting of the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations. It's nice to see everyone here today and a, a welcome to those listening on the stations of Maine Public Radio. Today's meeting comes to you from the Elks Event Center in Rockland, Maine, and I'm George Look. The Midcoast Forum was founded in 1983, and this is the 438th foreign meeting, forum meeting, where an invited expert speaks and answers questions on an issue critical to the formulation of U.S. foreign policy. Audios of past forum talks, Information about upcoming forum programs and information on how to become a forum member are available on our website at midcoastforum.org. We're very pleased today to have Richard Kessler with us to speak on the effect of the polarization of Congress on foreign policy. Certainly this is an issue, a key issue uh, for our times given the state of play in the U.S. Congress Dr. Richard Kessler served in a variety of senior professional positions in Congress for 25 years. He retired in 2014 as staff director of the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. Before that, he served as a staff director for the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He is one of only a few people to have served as a committee staff director in both the House of Representatives and the Senate. As staff director of two major congressional committees, Dr. Kessler managed multi-million dollar administrative budgets and directed legislative and legislative and oversight programs for Homeland Security and all other government agencies and for cybersecurity, counterterrorism, foreign policy, foreign assistance, public diplomacy, and export controls. Before joining the congressional staff, Dr. Kessler was a senior associate at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, co-directed an energy study at the Center for International and Strategic Studies, was a research associate at the University of the Philippines, and wrote on West African politics while living in Senegal. He has published extensively, has appeared as an expert commentator on numerous television and radio programs, and has consulted for both government and private organizations. Dr. Kessler has master's and doctorate degrees from the Fletcher School at Tufts University and an undergraduate degree from Colgate University. He served with the U.S. Army in Vietnam, where he received the Bronze Star. Dr. Kessler certainly currently serves on the Board of Internews and on the Maine Advisory Committee for the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition. He is also president of the library in Bath, Maine, and serves as chair of the Segedahawk County. I, get, I never get that right. Democratic Party. Others will get it right. Rick, welcome to the Midcoast Forum. <clears throat> Thank you.
Thank you, George. Can you, I, I think you can all hear me because I hear an echo. We all can't live in Lincoln County or Waldo County or Cumberland County. Some of us have to live in a, a real Maine County. I was a little bit embarrassed when George did my bio because it reminded me of how I skated over such thin ice on so many issues for so long and, and didn't drown. I guess that was in my favor. Uh, but uh, a lot of times I would sit there and nod knowingly without being, being totally clueless as to what was going on. Um, but it was interesting. And um, I think, um, and I'll say a little bit about this when we get to it, is it, it gives you some indication of uh, how congressional committees and staff are spread pretty thin on a wide range of issues. Um, I've been laboring over this for months, and I will say that I'll be very happy when this is over because I can go back to helping my wife uh, rake leaves rather than sit there and say, I need to think about what I'm going to tell you all today. Many of you lived in Washington, so you have some idea, but maybe some of our listeners out there don't... uh, have a real understanding of what Washington is like and how it's changed. So I'm, I'm going to give a brief view of the culture of Congress, talk a little bit about the committee's role in foreign affairs and the role of Congress in foreign policy and how it's all changed because of the political dynamics in this country today. Um, you know, when we first came to Washington, as many of you I'm sure did as well, Washington was a sleepy southern town. I I can remember how astounded I was getting on a bus and how polite the bus drivers were after coming from Boston. I mean, people people addressed each other. And and it was very small. There weren't very many ethnic restaurants. The Yingqing Palace was still operating where Henry Kissinger had met with the Chinese and had other meetings. And... um, And the people in Congress uh, came from a certain generation, as we know, the post-war generation, the the, uh, World War II generation. I served for a senator once who had, uh, as a high school student, watched Pearl Harbor being bombed from his high school grounds. And that, I think, brought, at least in the Senate side, uh, a lot of people together and made a commonality, which made uh, bipartisanship uh, more prevalent. And um, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the culture of Congress. Uh, And I will apologize in advance for how many of my colleagues may have treated members of the executive branch. Um, um, I wasn't always pleased myself. Um, But I was always uh, struck when I... When I joined Congress, it was after 10 years in Washington, and I thought I knew what Congress was like. I uh, knew people up there. It was back in the days when you could just walk through without going through a metal detector. And uh, you could drive around the White House. I mean, things were open. People people got to know each other. Um, And I thought I understood a little bit how Congress worked. And uh, I had even testified before the House and the Senate committees and had some experience on the other side of the dais. So, but I found it an entirely different environment than what I anticipated it to be. And um, 
here I'll say, I always thought it was one of the tensions between the executive branch and Congress comes from, the, comes from a failure of the executive branch sometimes to appreciate the culture of the people they're dealing with. And uh, to assume that they were going to be a lot like themselves. They were going to behave organizationally and bureaucratically as they themselves behave organizationally and bureaucratically. But that, that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, it was certainly a little bit more true of the Senate uh, than the House. And those, those two bodies are, are very distinct and the people who work in those bodies, both the members and the staff, view themselves uh, in very different ways. And there's a tension between the two that, no matter what your party is, that sometimes people don't really realize is going on when there is an issue of legislation or politics. Um, you know, the Senate, as we all know, is told to be the teacup, the saucer where things are cooled, and the House is supposed to be the place representing the people. And there's a lot of truth to that. Certainly it's gotten worse in the Senate where people have become more like the House members. But um, you could see it if you watch C-SPAN. You can see the difference between the floor behavior. In the Senate, staff sit in the back around... Two couches, Republicans on one side, Democrats on the other. There's a limit, very strict limit to how many people can be on the couch. Um, and they have a little railings. Um, the railings sort of went up when they got rid of the dress code for girls, women. Um, and, um, and the staff are supposed to be very quiet. You can't play with your Blackberry or your iPhone these days. And there are people that watch you like hawks to make sure you behave. And when you have to sit with your senator, they give you a little chair. So your senator sits up on a big chair, and you're right next to him in a little chair. And uh, that plays out a lot in what goes on uh, in the Senate. In the House, it's uh, completely different. I always, I always felt when something was going on on the floor of the House that it was like uh, when I went to college in a French university and sat down in the cafeteria for the first time and somebody threw a piece of bread on my plate from across the room. That's the way the house was. People were always throwing bread at each other. And uh, uh, sometimes it was literal. I remember one time there's a little railing that runs around the back of the house where you can stand. It's a little bit like a Roman arena. And the, and the seats are down in front, and you can sit in the back and watch what was going on. And I was standing there talking to Newt Gingrich's foreign policy person at the time, and we both stopped and looked up and realized that there was a Democratic member and a House member that were going into having fisticuffs on the floor of the House. And suddenly every security guard in the place descended on both of them like one big rugby pack and shoved them out the side door where they calmed down the tensions. And I don't think that incident ever appeared in the papers. But, you know, that's, that, that, that did happen in the House. And, um, and there was things were a lot more casual. Staff wandered around, uh, except down near the dais, but staff would wander around, sit in the same chairs as the House members, sit next to the House members. People would talk and gossip and suck on candy. And if you wanted to, there was a cafeteria in the back room where you could go and get a hot dog. And, uh, and a lot of the members would sleep in chairs 
when they didn't want their staff to figure out where they were. Um, there was also a difference, I think, in the tension between the minority and the majority. It was different in both the Senate and the House. And uh, I, one of the reasons why I had so many different jobs in the House and the Senate is because there was always an election, and the guy I worked for would lose, and I would have to look for a new job. So I kept shifting uh, back and forth. And um, one of the things that happens when you go into the minority is that uh, your budget gets cut, your office space gets cut, and your staff gets cut. And you would sit there and decide how much office space the minority would have by literally the square foot. I would have the, when I was in charge of a committee or a subcommittee, I would have the uh, floor plans for all the offices, and I would sit there, particularly in the Hart Building, where you can move things around, and actually calculate what the square footage was and what the percentage was for the House and the majority. And um, that obviously can create a f <laughs> some problems at the, at the staff level and even at the member level because your authority changes. Um, but still, it was a relatively fair system in the Senate. And people always found a little bit of few ways to make things a little bit bigger than they actually were. The, it's different in the House. The House is pretty well fixed. And uh, the House majority has generally treated the House minority, in a, um, regardless of party, in a, in a pretty uh, uh, unfriendly way. And I remember the first time I came to the House after working in the Senate, where there's a lot more collegiality, both among members and the staff, uh, to being astounded at how much, how much resentment there was between the two and how they actually treated each other fairly, fairly poorly and had bad sentiments about each other. And I think um, that sort of difference between a a more fair environment in the Senate and a more oppressive environment in the House carries through in some of the political debates that you see going on and the, and the way it's worsened. Um, it's, uh, it's made things uh, uh, a lot more difficult to achieve, and it plays out a little bit on the relationship between Congress and the executive branch when they're dealing with the executive branch. There's also a difference in terms of procedural techniques, parliamentary process, and I won't get into the details, uh, the parliamentary rules for the Senate are yay thick, and, uh, and uh, I've been out of it for a little while, so I haven't necessarily recalled all the details, but the Senate operates on a procedure known as unanimous consent. You, you need unanimous consent to bring anything up unless you want to force a major debate and delays on the floor of the Senate, which is very contentious and has been avoided. And so that gives an incentive to both sides to talk to each other and try to reach a compromise. Um, it doesn't always work in everyone's favor because sometimes the UC is used to screw things up, as you can see now with Senator Ted Cruz holding up all the nominations to be ambassador. He's using that, if, that, that process to stop something from uh, happening. Um, and certainly the, the, uh, over the years, 
the use of uh, denying unanimous consent to move. You need, in effect, for example, unanimous consent to hold hearings in the morning if you don't have a full majority of members be there for the hearing. Technically, you're supposed to have a majority of members at every hearing. But as those of you who watch may watch C-SPAN hearings, you don't always see that. And that's, and that's because there's unanimous consent to appear as if there's a majority of people. And that's generally how the Senate operates. You're supposed to have a majority on the floor of the Senate at all time. As you know, there may be only two or three people on the Senate at a certain time. And that's because unanimous consent gives the appearance that there's a full group of people, uh, members on the floor of the Senate. The House operates, can operate, and often operates under the conditions of martial law, which allows the majority to bring up a bill at any time uh, without a period of time to examine the legislation and vote on it. And it's a way of expediting uh, legislation on the floor of the House and for the majority to push things through on the minority side um, uh, when they want to, when they feel like the minority, for whatever reason, or they feel the pressure of trying to get something done, pushes them to do that. So that creates, again, a different dynamic between the House and the Senate on how they operate with each other and how it affects the way the executive branch operates with the, uh, with the Congress. I want to talk a little bit about the role of the committees on foreign uh, affairs. Um, and I'm going to concentrate on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, those are obviously the two committees I was most involved in other than the Governmental Affairs Committee. Um, but um, I could expand this. We could talk about the role of the Senate Select Committees in oversight. We could talk about the Appropriations Committees and their role in foreign affairs. We could talk about the Com Commerce and Banking Committees. Because there's a lot, of, a lot of the committees in the Senate have bits and pieces of jurisdiction over foreign affairs. And if you're sitting there trying to make something happen, you have to pay attention to all these different committees and the staff and the, and the members because they're all different. And uh, you can imagine that takes uh, uh, a lot of time and effort. But I want to talk a little bit about the difference because most people look at it and they think the Senate Foreign Relations Committee is the one that's key and the House Foreign Affairs Committee are, are the same too. Now, the role of these two committees is pretty similar, but not entirely. And that difference does make a, uh, has some impact on policy. The, the key factor, the key role of both these committees is to authorize um, spending um, for the various foreign affairs agencies. And that includes the State Department, Agency for International Development, uh, uh, the broadcasting uh, units, uh, to a certain degree, uh, the export uh, 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 agencies. Um, it has jurisdiction over arms sales. And technically speaking, you're not supposed to have a, an appropriations bill without an authorization bill. That process was known as the regular order. And I was, I think, uh, fortunate to join the Congress when we had people like Senator Mitchell as majority leader. 
and Senator Bobby Byrd is in charge of the Appropriations Committee. And those people are, were, in the case of Senator Byrd, and with Senator Mitchell, brilliant parliamentarians. And I, frankly, would stop when I saw that one of them was talking on the floor and listening to them. And if you ever have an opportunity to, and you want to know some history, go back and look at the speeches that Senator Byrd would give on the floor of the Senate that are in the congressional record. Um, and Senator Mitchell. I mean, they were, he was, I think he was the best majority leader I've seen in my, my time in, in Washington. He, was, he never raised his voice. He was always judicious. He was always fair and respectful. And he always knew exactly what he was going to do and when and what, he, what was going to happen. And he was a great one at making things move. And what we've lost in the Senate in the last uh, few years is that process of making the trains, as, as people would say, make the trains run on time or regular order where you had appropriations bill passed by a certain time by each committee and then go to the floor for consideration. Um, and what has happened has weakened the process, at least from the point of view of the authorizing committees, the foreign relations and the House Foreign Affairs. It's very rare to have an authorization bill now prior to an appropriations bill. And uh, often the uh, appropriations will, in effect, have a piece of language inside their bill which waives the requirement for an authorization bill. And we now have omnibus appropriations acts instead of individual acts. And that, that too, uh, means that there is less engagement, uh, less uh, desire to compromise, and more desire to sort of push everything through and, and uh, get out of Dodge. Um, and it's... Um, I think weakened the whole process and helped strengthen the, uh, to the detriment, I think, of our government, uh, strengthen the executive branch. Now, the, the jobs, as I mentioned, of the committees is to pass authorizations, which is something that uh, happens uh, because in part because the executive branch wants those changes. It gives them the authority not only to spend money, but also to organize themselves. So if they want to reorganize an agency inside the State Department, for example, they may be required to come up and have an authorization to change that. The other part that people mainly see um, is the oversight of policy and administration that occurs when committees have, have uh, hearings. And... Um, and I'm going to give a few examples where I think uh, Congress had some impact on, on uh, policy, foreign policy. And the final major area is on nominations and appointments. And this always gets a lot of attention. Um, I always thought it was a little bit of a mixed bag. Um, the, um, um, and forgive the ambassadors in this room, of which I know there are a few, is the political ambassadors, um, I, I have to admit, um, and you're sitting there and as a staff member and you have to handle their whole end nomination, 
which is a little bit of a complicated process. You talk to them, you, you uh, have to review their financial statements, uh, and uh, you don't see their FBI background report. Only a senator can see their FBI background report, but that sometimes can be critical, and sometimes people don't make it. Um, and uh, I had one political nominee come to me at one point, and I read his CV, and it didn't quite make sense to me. And I did a little digging, and forgive the ex-CIA people in this room, but I discovered he'd actually been an operations person in the CIA undercover, and he'd given me his false uh, bio. Or I should say the White House had submitted his false bio. He doesn't give it to me. The White House personnel gives it to me. And um, um, I have to admit, um, uh, he didn't become ambassador. He was very well connected. And if I mention his name, I'm sure all of you will know who I'm talking about. He he was very well connected politically and socially. Um, And he didn't become ambassador to the country I had jurisdiction with. Uh, and they withdrew his nomination, and the White House cleaned up his CV and resubmitted his CV, and they gave him a better country, frankly, from his point of view. <laughs> so I had the satisfaction of Lee standing up for the uh, committee's uh, roles and responsibilities, and he ended up with a much nicer place. He had the, I can remember doing his interview with him, and he had the mistaken belief in the country in Asia to which he'd been nominated that the capital city was on the beach. <laughs> and we had to disabuse him of the notion and tell him it was actually interior and it was quite a ways from the beach. But, uh, but uh, that's one of the things that happens with nominees. So political nominees can be a little... Uh, I always tried to move career nominees as quickly as I could. Um, uh, but political nominees, the other problem was is that you would find, and this is not talking about ambassadors much, but as assistant secretaries that also have to be confirmed, is that the political assistant secretaries, the, the executive branch is always finding a reason why they shouldn't testify. And uh, they wanted to send the career people up, the DAS for the, for the uh, office as opposed to the assistant secretary. And I just didn't think that was fair. I mean, I think if you went through a political process and you got to be the nominee, you should be the one who takes the slings and arrows of outrageous members, uh, which is often the case, and not send up the career guy to take the arrows in the back for you. Uh, So I often had little tussles with the executive branch over that. Um, Now let me explain a little bit... um, on some examples where I think we had a major impact in, from my experience. Um, and I'm, there are quite a few others. Um, I was reminded the other day of, um, in 1991, um, we became aware that um, the Algerians were building a nuclear reactor in the desert with Chinese help. And one of the reasons I came to that is because uh, I was in charge of Asia in the, uh, in the Congress, and uh, I spent a lot of time following China around the world, which got me involved in South Asia, and then it got me involved in North Africa. And uh, we had a hearing uh, 
and um, with a political assistant secretary, and uh, raised that as a question. We didn't say, gee, do you know anything about this secret Algerian nuclear power plant that we've discovered through various means in the desert? We asked it much more obliquely, and to my astonishment, he admitted. Made uh, front-page news in the New York Times and elsewhere, and and uh, I'm never quite sure if he intended to admit it or it was a misstatement because there was some dispute within the executive branch about how far to go. This, this was 1991, and apparently the nuclear construction had been underway since 1983. And uh, it takes sometimes a while to resolve things, and that's where Congress can be useful in providing leverage. And uh, as a result... Uh, uh, the Algerians ended up going under I, I, International Atomic Energy Agency safeguards, and uh, and uh, we had some positive effect. I count that as a victory for Congress. Um, it may have been a victory for both sides. Um, another example um, is one of the smaller things that uh, we did, and um, that start. Um, um, helping East Timor move to independence. And at the time, uh, uh, as I said, I covered Asia, so I covered Indonesia, and we had a problem with Suharto over uh, uh, what was going on in East Timor. And um, we had a, um, uh, some major human rights violations going on. And uh, uh, an individual I knew that ran some uh, cooperative aid programs in Indonesia came and we were talking about the situation in East Timor, which had most of its major export crop at that time, which was sandalwood, uh, uh, deforested by the Indonesians, what we could do to help the economy of East Timor. And um, he suggested an organic coffee program, um, which... Uh, I thought sounded very interesting. So we inserted in the foreign aid bill language requiring uh, AID to set up, a, I think it was a $5 million program in developing organic coffee in East Timor, which has been, I think, extraordinarily successful. In fact, the other day I was in the Bath Natural uh, Food Store and I saw some of it there. Uh, Starbucks started to buy it, so I have to admit... In many ways, I, I always felt East Timor coffee was something I had a contributing factor to and, and has been uh, very good. But um, the, the, uh, a major issue that probably deserves its own book is um, normalizing uh, relations with uh, Vietnam. And uh, it started out in the Bush administration over Cambodia. Some conservative inside the uh, Bush administration, as well as uh, a Democratic congressman in the House, uh, were pushing at the time. This is when the, uh, after the Vietnam invaded Cambodia and uh, pushed out the Khmer Rouge, we put an embargo on... Uh, on relations with Cambodia because of that. And there was a major refugee community in Thailand uh, full of um, uh, disaffected uh, uh, people from, not the, there was a Khmer Rouge 
group, but there was also a, a, what was called the Non-Communist Resistance Group under Prince Sihanouk. And um, this group wanted to start a, uh, arming the NCR so they could put pressure on the Vietnamese-backed government in Phnom Penh to, uh, to change. And um, we introduced legislation in the, uh, and I'll give credit, it was actually Peter Galbraith that came up, to, came up with the language. And it was two weeks after I had joined the committee, so I was totally clueless about what was going on. And, uh, and then I got stuck with this legislation and moving it around. And um, we were helped because Vice President Dan Quayle had gone to Bangkok and held a press conference in which he announced that the CIA were going to have a, classic, a, a, a secret arms uh, funding program for the non-communist resistance. <laughs> and that made headlines for some reason and, uh, and gave the impetus to... Uh, a group of us in Congress, and I would say it was a very strong bipartisan group. We had people like Senator Wallopstaff and, uh, and uh, others uh, giving us support, which ultimately led, and I won't go through all the steps, to uh, not only uh, normalizing relations with, uh, with uh, Cambodia, but also with uh, Vietnam. Um, so Congress can play a major role in pushing sometimes the trains along where they can be slower. It obviously can be also an impediment to what's going on. And I think that's, that's what's really happened in the last few years. I think those of us, I was thinking the other day that, and I've, I suppose like m- many of us, we've, we've all tried to sit there and figure out what it is about our country. Why have things become so difficult? Why is it so contentious now uh, in the debates between uh, Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals, moderates, progressives? Why, why is all this? And um, I haven't yet figured it out. Is it the end of uh, a post-war consensus, or is it the emergence of media, or is it emergence of all sorts of things? It probably is all sorts of factors. But in terms of um, the actual, in t- in, you know, I came to Washington when Ronald Reagan was first getting elected and Paul Manafort and Lee Atwater were the uh, key uh, radicals in the political spectrum, and they certainly helped change things uh, for those of us who remember the, uh, uh, that campaign. But um, a lot of it started with Newt Gingrich, and I was thinking the other day that it's been, we've had this going on now for three decades it's just amazing to me that there's been so much bile built up after three decades. And, I, and it certainly played out in terms of the, the uh, foreign policy environment. And um, it has, uh, you know, we all remember Sir Arthur, I mean, Senator Arthur Vandenberg's famous quote that politics stops at the water's edge. And that's no longer true. When I used to go abroad on staff congressional delegations, I always went with Republican counterparts. And when we went in meetings, we'd never criticize the current executive branch, even if it was an opposite party than mine that was there. But we did give differing viewpoints from both the Republicans and Democrats. So people abroad would not think of us as uh, just one side, and we weren't 
pushing things, we were talking about things, and we could work together. And that, that certainly has changed. Now a lot of travel, a lot, both by members and staff, or of one party. And, uh, and I think that affects a little bit the way people see things. People are out making a, um, trying to make a political point of view when they travel, as opposed to learning about what's going on in the countries they're visiting. And it affects, to some degree, um, both parties, even when it's your president that's traveling abroad. So you will see both Republicans and Democrats. I mean, the Democrats just uh, created problems for uh, Senator Biden when he was on his uh, G20 trip. A lot of that is unprecedented, and we've accepted it as what it uh, should be normally. Um, Another area that has uh, changed things is the fact that uh, members of Congress, frankly, don't work very hard. Um, We used to be in at least five days a week, sometimes on the weekends. And I can remember one time when George Mitchell threatened to keep us in permanently and brought the mattresses to the floor. So people, literally mattresses to the floor, not on the floor of the Senate, but in the back rooms where they were all going to sleep while we stayed in session. And uh, that has stopped. I mean, partly it's, I think, pressure to have family-friendly events. Partly it's the pressure of high costs of living in D.C., where members can't always afford to have a, put their families and have two houses and two, two residents in two different places. Um, but um, we're generally in session, both the House and the Senate, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. Monday, Friday, everybody's gone. By Thursday night, everybody's gone. Thursday evening, everybody's gone. And that, that really reduces the ability for people, members, to work together. And it also reduces the time to bring legislation to the floor and make things happen. And if, yeah, I, I, I think that has really created problems in terms of getting compromise where normally we would get compromise. So members work less. Um, the other aspect of it is the, um, as we all know, the filibuster threat. Now we all go back and forth as should we get rid of the filibuster, and you've all seen the articles and, and uh, probably thought about it yourself. And the problem with the filibuster in many ways, and this started actually under the Democrats, is that we we allowed people to use the threat of a filibuster instead of an actual filibuster. So now all a member has to do is show that, send a note to the floor of the Senate saying, my intent is to have a filibuster on this event. So everything stops because of that little threat. It really did make a difference when members who threatened a filibuster actually had to do one. You know, when Jesse Hilmes filibustered the uh, voting rights. He had to sit there on the floor and do it. And uh, I remember many filibuster with uh, Senator D'Amato over, uh, what was it, the F-86 planes to Japan. Uh, He was sitting there trying to filibuster uh, that one for a while, and then he got too tired. Um, So if, if you have that going on, you do it a few times, and everybody starts getting saying, this is sort of stupid, I don't want to be here. Why are you keeping me here when I could be at home? And, uh, and that forces a little bit of a compromise. The other problem, I th- and I think this has weakened 
it obviously has weakened the Congress. But I think the other aspect of it is that we've had the rise of an imperial presidency. We have had a uh, presidency that, for a variety of reasons, in part because of dysfunctionality in the Congress, forced to um, do things by executive order or work their way around legislation in various ways or do things sub rosa, and, uh, which only comes out years later that they actually did something. Um, and, um, and it's also um, resulted in... I saw this starting under, actually, President Clinton. A concentration of information in the executive branch. Um, and a desire to keep Congress in the dark. And, um, you know, uh, uh, having had a background in intelligence myself and uh, frankly came from my grandfather and my mother were both in intelligence, um, some understanding of what's going on. And as a Senate staffer, I had a special compartmented intellig intelligence uh, uh, clearance. I had a Q nuclear weapons clearance. I got read into various special compartments over the career. And um, a lot of key professional staffers had that knowledge and were able to talk to their members about things and keep them educated of what was going on. And we were also able to have a better understanding of what was going on because the information itself wasn't concentrated in the executive branch. I used to be able to talk to analysts from the Defense Intelligence Agency, from the NSC, from uh, CIA, and get different points of view. Gradually, we've concentrated all that at the top in a pyramid structure, and it started with the Intelligence Reform Act, and it uh, didn't start there, but that started to, uh, that really um, bureaucratized it, created this huge, huge National Intelligence Directive, uh, which is based out at uh, Liberty Station, which some of us old Washington hands know used to be the headquarters for a Beltway Bandit, um, and uh, now has all these fancy plasma screens where they can monitor things. I'm not really sure whether <laughs> they actually see anything. However, um, and we don't have the disparate points of view that a good analyst wants to hear. You want to have a debate. You don't want to have the, a one point of view information. And I have to admit, I opposed the, NI, uh, the National Intelligence Directorate. I thought it was a bad idea. And I also opposed the formation of Homeland Security Department. In fact, my boss at the time voted against it, and I still think it's a bad idea. I mean, we're sort of stuck with it, so we have to make it work. But concentration isn't necessarily good in a democracy, and uh, it isn't necessarily good to get people to work together if there's only one information source. So um, I think that's, those are some of the reasons why we have a problem now in Congress, not only in foreign policy, which actually probably is more bipartisan still than domestic policy is, but why there is so much tension being built up and why there's no real outlet for it and why there's no real pressure to resolve it. So let me stop there, and if you have any questions, I'll try to answer them best I can. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Rick. Very nice. While they're collecting uh, some questions, I always start with a question of my own. You talked about the uh, imperial presidency and the fact that the executive agreements are um, more common, more uh, prevalent than they used to be. Um, and I always think of uh, the Iran nuclear agreement as kind of an example of that. Could you elaborate a little bit on what the what the problem <laughs> yeah. is with executive agreements versus things that Congress actually approves? Yeah, the Iran nuclear agreement, actually, that was the, the uh, uh, one of the original bills actually originated uh, when I was staff director of the House Foreign Affairs Committee and my boss at the time, Congressman Berman. Uh, we wanted to put... Uh, we wanted to get uh, good legislation passed on the Iran agreement, if you remember that. Um, uh, it isn't... It, and it took... We were under considerable pressure for two years to move a bill out. And uh, we are under pressure from uh, uh, Republicans in the House, um, not so much the Senate side, but certainly the House Republicans and House Democrats, and uh, uh, pro-Israel lobbyists were banging at the door to get this legislation passed. And, um, And, of course... The administration, at least elements of the administration, particularly the State Department, weren't excited about it. Um, And um, uh, we realized that really effective legislation needed multilateral consensus. And it needed a buy-in by Iran's uh, major trading partners, China, Russia, and uh, some of the European countries. And... It was a unique piece of legislation because our counterpart wasn't the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. It was the Senate Banking Committee under Chris Dodd. And um, that was a tweak in the various differences of jurisdiction and the committees of both the House and the Senate, which makes for a different legislative process. And we withstood uh, considerable pressure from all sides, one side to weaken it, one side to make it pass the next day, before we had an agreement on legislation that we thought would work and have some impact on Iran. And, uh, and then we passed it. And, it, and I think it was, was effective. I mean, later, um, uh, my boss at the time, uh, for other reasons, was no longer uh, chairman of the committee, and, uh, and the floodgates opened up in terms of... Uh, people who thought we weren't tough enough to begin with. I think we were actually tough enough. And I, I personally think that um, it was a, a process that had results. Um, we ensured IEA uh, safeguards of key Iranian nuclear plants. Um, uh, we knew a lot about what was going on inside Iran that the Iranians probably didn't know we knew what was going on. And we were able to use that to make a difference and gradually bring Iran into the system. I've been one who's long believed that um, uh, we need to work with these types of governments if we're going to get a change. And, um, and I think we were able to do that. And then um, the Trump administration came in and now we have a lot of broken pottery on the ground, and things are getting worse. And uh, 
I'm not sure what the end result's going to be. Hopefully, it'll bring, we can get back to a, a safeguards agreement. Because, I mean, you, if you look at the whole process, the possibility of taking out the Iranian nuclear program, of creating a war, it's very complicated. And uh, I know everyone in the bureaucracy and, and a fair number of us on Capitol Hill spent a lot of time looking at military options and assessing what would work and what wouldn't work and what were the ramifications of it. I wish we had spent that much time looking at the uh, war in Iraq. Um, uh, but uh, that's a different subject, at least I get a question about it. <laughs> Well, kind of a follow-up here. Are there any foreign policy issues today where there's bipartisan agreement? Actually, um, um, I would say, if you look at the statistics, and there are academics, not me, uh, who have looked at the statistics, is um, um, most foreign policy things have bipartisan support. Um, if uh, there's a good study by a professor at American University who looked at votes in Congress from, uh, uh, what was it, 2017, or no, um, uh, 1993 to 2017, and found the vast majority of votes were bipartisan, strongly bipartisan. I would argue that, you know, that sounds like a good thing, but actually having bipartisan support for something can be a bad thing. I mean, who's, who's, who, who is to say that having a total agreement on doing something right, I mean, there was bipartisan support on the Vietnam War, and then, uh, and then uh, there were a few lone voices against it, uh, uh, like William Fulbright, whose speech, I think, was in 68 or so. It's still a well worth reading if you want to read a good analysis of foreign affairs. So, yes, uh, I would say, yes, the statistics at least prove that foreign policy is still strongly bipartisan. But I wonder if it's always a good thing. There was a strong bipartisan support for going into the war in Iraq. Uh, my boss at the time was one of the few senators to vote against it. I wrote his speech, and I think it was, frankly, uh, if I say so myself, prescient. Uh, and it was partly because our intelligence agencies had pretty well predicted what was going to happen. And nobody was willing to pay attention to us. And we looked at the uh, weapons of mass destruction. I spent, you know, I'm sure you might have too, George, spent hours and days looking through the intelligence on WMT. And the only thing... I could come up with is maybe there's some leftover CW weapons from the Iraq-Iran war. But convincing a majority of the Senate to see it that way was impossible. So again, that was, had bipartisan support and it wasn't a great idea, I think. We should have concentrated on Afghanistan, in my view, and speaking as a Vietnam veteran, I was always uh, horrified when we went into Afghanistan about how our institutional memory about counterinsurgency tactics seem to have evaporated. A lot of interest here in your comments on uh, unanimous consent and filibusters. Let me start with a question. The unanimous consent rule is clearly being abused by, for example, Cruz and Hawley. Is there, isn't there a way to adopt a rule to... Um, 
for, to allow these nominations and confirmations to go forward? Uh, you can force a vote on the nominations. Again, I think that gets back to the willingness to uh, force committees in the Congress to stay in session to make it happen. I mean, I, I, my view is you start uh, doing it and you bring the mattresses to the floor and you, this is what's going to happen, guys and uh, ladies, and you make it happen. But uh, uh, the UC is pretty well entrenched, and I'm not the... I've never been the parliamentarian, so I can't comment as to think, thinking whether a parliamentarian can come up with a different way around it, as they often are capable of. The parliamentarian's office in the Senate and the House are really important. And uh, whenever uh, I had something really that could be contentious, I would show it to the parliamentarian's office and get their readout as to whether it was feasible or not. And uh, they were always nonpartisan and, uh, and uh, very capable. And there's one here on the filibuster, too. How would elimination of the filibuster impact national security decision-making? Is that good or bad? I'm not sure how it would impact. It would depend on what was pending that could be filibustered. Um, and, um, you know, as I, as I said, I think if you'd gone back to uh, requiring in-person filibusters, it might have the same impact of getting rid of it. I, I've looked at it a, a limited amount and, uh, and, uh, and actually queried a former Senate parliamentarian about it. I'm not sure if we could go back, and that's sort of the problem. How do you go forward on something like this? And the way forward may only be getting rid of the filibuster. After all, the filibuster is historically a fairly recent innovation, and it's certainly become more common more recently. But they're, 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 uh, this is where people who oppose getting rid of the filibuster uh, probably need to spend a little time thinking about um, what, it's, uh, what for, what happens if we get rid of it. How would it have an impact on foreign affairs? Uh, you know, it would have more debate. We'd get more pe people confirmed, probably, if we went to, we've gone to basically to a simple majority on all nominations. Um, but um, I don't think it would be negative overall. And someone asking about the influence here of the... Um of, again, of the executive branch. In recent years, the executive branch chose to ignore congressional actions, appropriations on a number of occasions. Is there a mechanism to exert congressional will, or is it irrelevant and at the you know everything is now at the whim of politics? I know I have to. I I would. Is there a particular case they're referring to? Doesn't. I uh, y yes. I think um, things like the wall and uh, you can Congress cut off funding. Will, you know, and uh, it takes an effort. Uh, Basically, um, Congress threatens a lot. It's like subpoenas and everything else you, you threaten. And, and then you try to make life as painful as possible um, uh, for those people who aren't doing what you think they should do. I mean, funding has always been... Uh, you, you, we would... Um, um, and we would spend hours going over uh, legis legislative directives trying to make sure that we had... Uh, precluded that, those sorts of actions. But as you say, it still happens. Um, I don't think it happens over major things. Uh, and it has been an issue. In some ways, it's been very helpful 
in the Trump administration to the bureaucracy in terms of giving them flexibilities that otherwise might have been denied them by political appointees in the Trump administration. So, you know, and Congress didn't necessarily mind that. Let me just finish with a real softball question here. What would you say to a young person just out of college or graduate school thinking of going to work on the Hill? Encourage or not? House or Senate? I I always encourage. I talk to a lot of kids. I have a lot of uh, people I mentored over the years. And uh, I always encourage people to work in the House or the Senate. I, I always would say that if you want to be an effective person working in the House and the Senate, it helps be the same sort of person the CIA would recruit to work on operations. You have to be really attuned to people and environments. And one of the things that you don't see on the, on the outside is the interplay between people. And you do not have a lot of time. You cannot write policy papers and position papers and expect your bosses to read them. You sometimes have about 20 seconds to summarize an argument and tell them how they should vote or what the issue is that they should bring up. And you have to be able to trust your, your, your uh, colleagues as well as the colleagues in the other party. So your word is your bond. And if you get a reputation for not standing up to your word, then you're not going to last. And finally, you have to decide what sort of political persuasion you are. Are you a Democrat or a Republican? And I would tell young people that they're allowed to make one or two mistakes, but you got to decide fairly early on because you won't get necessarily trusted if you're flipping back and forth. If you're so malleable in terms of your viewpoints, you don't know where you stand. You have to know where you stand in politics. But I, I think it's a great career. Thank you very much, Rick. You've been listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. Today was a talk from Dr. Richard Kessler. If you missed part of the program or want to hear it again, you can always find it on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to access this program and many other archived Speaking in Maine programs. Music in this hour comes from Our Alarm Clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine. And Speaking in Maine is produced by me, KG Akimaladu. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio.